Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Carl Scaramuza. He is the president of Credit Blueprint. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks for having me, my friend. My pleasure. Let's just start with a little bit of your background and how you got into the whole field of helping people improve their credit, both their business credit and their personal credit. Well, I've been in the credit world for 20 years. I was in the mortgage business from 98 to 2008. And then in uh, 2008, everything got bad. I jumped out of the mortgage business and I started a credit repair business. So I've been in the credit repair business ever since. I've I've seen it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. I've helped clients with four or 500 credit scores. I've helped clients take a 750 credit score, turn it into an 800 score. So, What are some of the common misperceptions that people have about what it takes to get your credit score to be better? A lot of people wait. A lot of people sit on bad credit. They'll go through a circumstance. If you go back to 2008, a lot of people got killed, like really lost everything. And I still hear from some of those people that didn't take action, meaning they might have let some credit cards go. They might have filed bankruptcy. And what they do is they just wait. They don't take action. So they try to ride it out like seven years or 10 years and hoping that everything's going to fall off. But what happens with a lot of these situations, if you let like a, a, cre- a credit card go that turns into a collection account, these companies, these law firms will come in and buy them up and then re-report them like they're brand new a couple years later. And then all of a sudden you have this account that you stopped paying on 11 years ago and you look at your credit report and it looks like it's two years ago. So, so people, the biggest thing that people do is they wait and they think that time's going to heal all wounds. And, and that's not the case at all. So in a case like that, what should they do if they don't sit? What kind of action should they take? if they've had a delinquency or default to some kind of a a problem on their credit? Yeah, let's use bankruptcy as an example. People come out of a bankruptcy, and I work with a lot of bankruptcy. My company worked with a lot of bankruptcy attorneys, and after uh, the client comes out of the bankruptcy, think about it. There's a lot of entities involved. There's the trustee. There's the uh, creditors that you're paying off. There's the credit bureaus, and everybody needs to communicate. And a lot of the times they don't, and you're left with this big mess. So what we're able to do instead of waiting is start to work with the client immediately and clean up some of the debt that was discharged. So some of those accounts, even if they're, even if there's a zero balance. So for two examples, if you come out of a bankruptcy and the debt is discharged, meaning it's paid in full, it could still show a balance or even a zero balance. If it's showing on your credit report, it's costing you points. Now, also, right now it's tax refund season, so you get a lot of people that'll they'll get their tax refund money. They'll start paying off creditors they'll, they'll, to a zero balance that you know they hadn't paid in a long time. That's the same thing. So let me hammer this home. If you have a creditor, a collection account that you paid from years ago, and there's a zero balance, if it's still on your credit report, it's costing you points. So what we're able to do is go in there, send some letters out on the client's behalf, and get those negative accounts, those collections removed or expunged from the credit report with a simple letter campaign. Does that make sense? So why is it something that they would need you to do? Why couldn't they write the letters to the credit bureaus themselves and get the same thing taken care of? 
Good questions. They could they could do a couple things. They can write the letters themselves. You can go right online to like TransUnion or Equifax.com and you can challenge it or dispute it yourself. Um, absolutely. But what we do different, if you think about the credit bureaus, they're like an 8,000 pound gorilla on your back. It's very difficult to pick up the phone and talk to them. And they are repositories, meaning they gather data, whether you paid an account or whether you didn't pay an account, and they put it on your credit report and they want to leave it there. They don't want to do anything. So if you as a consumer come around and say, hey, I satisfied that, most nine times out of 10, they're going to ignore you. And then you might send them a letter another 30 days and then they might go, well, we put it on there. We verified it. It's accurate. So please go away. So, you know, what we're able to do is get past the gatekeeper, get past the person that's putting your file at the bottom there. And then it's a it's a, a letter campaign that's directed based on their response letters because they're going to use stall tactics. They're, they're not in the business to remove things off the report. They want to gather the data. They want to furnish it on there and they never want to think about it again. So we're able to get past the gatekeeper where most consumers fail online. It's one of the biggest things I see is they'll go online and try to dispute a negative account themselves and lose faith after, you know, 30 or 60 days. What are people's rights? There is what's called the FACTA law, right? Which is the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, which gives people some rights so supposedly it's gotten better. I mean, the FTC and various government agencies have been after the credit bureaus for quite a while to clean up their act. Has that made any difference or made it easier for people to clean up errors in their credit reports? I mean, yes. If you paid attention the last couple of years, some of the major credit bureaus got sued because they would do like soft deletes, meaning they'd put something on your credit report. A consumer would, would challenge it. The credit bureau would, would in return remove it. And then six months later, they'd put it back on. So they started getting sued for that. So you don't see that as much. So they're definitely starting to clean some stuff up. And I remember when they started changing the laws around a couple of years ago, people said, oh, your business is in trouble, man. Like you're not going to be able to send letters and challenge stuff for people. And by the way, what we do is my company credit blueprint is so much bigger than just sending out letters. There's the educational part behind helping people build their credit to the next level. Um, but but the credit bureaus, like I said, they're, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to get information from someone that says you paid and you didn't pay. So there's always going to be a business there. It's cleaner than it was before, but it's still there's a lot of room for improvement. So the whole idea of credit repair has kind of gotten a bad name that people are promising all kinds of things they can't really deliver. People talk about credit enhancement. There are some bad actors in the credit repair business. You're a good actor, but what's the difference between you and others? who offer credit repair services. Yeah, uh, thank you. And I like that word enhancement, Jordan. That's a great word, credit enhancement, not credit repair. So we're, we're a, a rated with the Better Business Bureau from the day that we opened the door. So I opened the doors uh, with my own company in 2011. So we're, we're going on nine years now and a rated from, from day one, which is not easy to do in this business. But what separates us from other companies is the educational part. Like sending out letters and challenging negative things, that's what like the national companies that we compete against, that's what they do. They just send letters out and that leaves so many people wanting more, so many consumers feeling like, is that all you did was send the letter? So with us, we, we educate the customer and it's very personalized. Everyone has their own what we would call credit coach and a coach is going to look at 
your credit report and say, based on how you performed in the last two years, here's where we can fill in the blanks. Here's a credit card you need. Here's a bill we don't want you to pay. Um, so it's very personalized for, for every client that comes into our program. What would you recommend for people where something happens to them that is of no fault of their own, that it still hurts their credit? For example, right now, you've got the government shutdown, where you have 800,000 federal employees not getting paid, uh, living paycheck to paycheck. Is this going to hurt their credit scores badly, even though they didn't do anything wrong? I mean, it could, right? I mean, they they could miss a payment on a credit card or something like that. Um, so it, it certainly could. I work with a lot of military, so that's a similar situation where they go over there to serve the country, right? They're not really paying attention to the bills or somebody back home is paying attention and then they get back here and they're credit But you can, for the government worker situation, you can ask for what's called a one-time exception. So let's just say you do fall 30 days behind on a credit card or 60 days behind. You can clearly call the credit card company up Paint yourself as a real person with, with a real problem, right? I'm not getting paid right now. And ask for a one-time exception. They grant them all the time, the actual credit card company. You think in this case the credit card companies and banks understand the situation are going to give them more than a one-time if this goes on for a while so that their credit is not ruined? Probably not, no. Now, one-time exceptions are one-time exceptions are for, you know, I've seen I've seen credit card companies waive two payments, you know, make make two two of those. But no, if it's going on for a while, there's going to be some damage there. But but, you know, if if the damage is is they fall a couple months behind on these credit cards, you know, eventually they'll get those points back when they get caught up. So that might be a situation where they could call up and negotiate if they're 90 days or 120 days behind, and then eventually they get caught up. Credit card companies are willing to work with you, Jordan. Like they want your money. So if you can find a way to come up with some kind of payment to get that caught back up and and then start from there, eventually time will heal the wounds for those late payments. They will get points back as they start to make payments again. It always seems though it goes up, your credit score goes up slowly with lots of good behavior. And it goes down quickly with one bad behavior. It's not equal. Like really fast, especially for, for people that have excellent credit. Like if you have a 780 or an 800 credit score and a 30-day late shows up, you could lose 100 or 150 points like overnight. So that's that's true. Now, when your credit is on like the lower side, you know, for example, scores range from FICO scores range from 300 to 850. So if you had a score that was a 500, and you fell 30 days behind, you might only lose 10 points. But but the 800, the 700 scores lose 100 points, and their credit could be ruined overnight with one late payment for the simple fact that the algorithm works is that, like it's not used to. It's called the FICO algorithm. Somebody that has a 700 or an 800 score has five years of never missing a credit card or a mortgage payment. So one payment, the algorithm thinks, you know what? This person's not doing well, and they lose a lot of points. Something went wrong financially. Yeah. What are some? If you're doing okay, you're in the 700s. What are some things you can do to get up to 800, or you know, really a very peak credit score? That elusive. I call it the the 800 club. That's a fun club to be in. That's where the the, the wealthy live in that club. There's so many things that you can do with that club, uh, and it's not a real club. I just call it that though. But if you're trying to turn a 700 score into an 800 score, the first thing you could do is ask for a simple line increase 
on your credit card. So it, the existing credit cards that you have right now, you ask for a simple line increase. Call the credit card companies up and say, listen, I want to turn a $10,000 Capital One card and I want to have a $20,000 credit limit. Because the more available credit you have, the higher your credit limits are, the higher your credit scores are going to go. So that's one thing you can do. Now, let's say that the credit card company says no. This is something, if you're, if you're paying attention, you probably never heard of this before, but it's called the reconsideration line. So let's, for example, let's say you take my advice and you call Capital One and you say, I want a line increase on my credit cards. I want, to, I want 10000 to turn into 20000 because I just listened to this guy, Credit Carl, and I want to get into the 800 Club. And Capital One says, nah, not going to happen. You don't qualify right now. See, what happens is their first decision is, is made by like a robot. It's an underwriter or something like that. So if you call back the reconsideration line the next day, paint yourself right as a real human being. Here's my situation. Here's why I need that line increase. One time I called them back four days in a row until I got the line increase. So it's a real thing, the reconsideration. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Carl Scaramuza. He is president of Credit Blueprint. You can find out more at his website, creditblueprint.net. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there. Struggling to keep up with credit card payments? Searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt? Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, Visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is this half hour is Carl Scaramuza. He's the president of Credit Blueprint. You can find out more at his website, creditblueprint.net. Welcome back to the show, Carl. Pleasure. So we've been talking about the personal side. Let's talk about the business side. What are some things people can do to get their business credit established and uh, to a better level so they can get a lot of good business credit? Believe it or not, that's a, like a big misconception. A lot of people try to work on their business credit, but business like credit starts with your personal credit score. So you got to have a 680, 700 personal score, and that opens the doors to get business funding. So we kind of skip that middle step. A lot of people going, I want to get my business credit right. I want to get my business credit right. Well, for what? Like you want business credit to get business funding. You want capital. You need cash. So people don't understand that. And that's a a transition with a lot of um, business owners is they have everything leveraged, all of their debt leveraged on their personal credit cards. So they got to get their personal scores up in that 700 plus range, which opens the doors for business funding, which are business credit cards, business lines of credit, things like that, where they can transfer that personal debt over to a business credit card or a business line. Now, what happens is, is they keep their personal credit scores intact. Because if you have too much business debt on your personal credit cards, you can never have great credit scores because you're over leveraged. Can't have $50,000 in available personal credit cards and owe 45,000 on that. Your scores will always be taking a hit because 30% of your score is based on how you manage your, your credit cards. Yeah. So, so, but on the business credit side, can you eventually get it where you don't have to do a personal guarantee and it kind of stands on the business alone, or does it always have to be personal guarantee and therefore on your personal credit? Yeah, there's a fine line. There's always normally a personal guarantee with some of the bigger deals, not with the business credit cards and the business lines, but um, there's you're always going to see personal guarantee stuff. Somewhere down the line, you're going to see that. Now, you have a... Uh, a It's a Facebook Live thing that you do on Sunday nights called Other People's Money. You're a big believer in OPM, Other People's Money. Maybe explain the principle behind that and and how do you use that to build wealth? Absolutely. I'm a big believer in Other People's Money. I had a guest on my uh, Sunday night show last night, a couple nights ago, who literally bought, sold, exited, scaled, like, 15 different businesses using other people's money from, you know, leveraging his primary residence to pull cash out all the way up to business lines and business loans to grow his revenue and then getting angel investors and venture capitalists. And so I'm, I've seen it. I've seen people take businesses where they're doing six figures and the way they get the seven figures and eight figures is they tap into the power of other people's money. You see, your ability to access other people's money and inject that into your business is the difference between like regular growth and light speed growth. Like regular growth, I've had regular growth. When we, our first year in business in 2012, we did like 300,000. 
And then in 2013, we did like 325. And I remember my wife and I were sitting around drinking champagne. We're having fun, patting each other on the back. That's regular growth. I'm talking about like your ability to, to, to get OPM injected into your business to increase your revenue. That's how you go up 100%, 500%, 1,000%. And there's an abundance of it right now. It's everywhere. Like ev- everywhere you turn, I was in New York not that long ago. There's a bank. And then floor two, there's a bank. Floor, like there's banks on top of banks. There's angel investors, which are affluent individuals that want to give you money so you can grow your business. Like there's OPM is in abundance right now. It's everywhere. So what do you do, need to do to get the confidence of uh, people to lend you money so that you can explode your business like that? Mm-hmm. Well, your credit's not just, you know, the three-digit number. It's not just your FICO number. It's your ability to sell someone on you. So you got to put this resume together. You got to be able to sell you uh, to someone else. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a book of business for 20 years in order to get money from someone. That's not, I mean, you do proof of concept would help, right? I mean, but you don't have to have a book of business in real estate or in, in the business world for 20 years to get money from private individuals, from private equity. You can have proof of concept for three months and go, this is great. Let me pitch you on my vision. Let me pitch you on my idea. So your ability to sell yourself, that's, that's going to be key to getting access to you know, private equity, if that makes sense. So you're saying one of the keys to using business credit like this and other people's money is to grow your net worth. Maybe give us an example or two of people you've helped use the OPM strategy to grow their net worth dramatically. 100%. Well, I, if you're going to grow your net worth, there's the, the most important things I like to see people invest in is real estate and your business. So most financial advisors are not going to say that your business is part of your net worth. But if you own it, it's producing revenue and you can sell it for one times, three times, five times, or you can leverage it to get access to money. It's an asset and that can help you increase your net worth. So I work with a lot of business owners that are doing a million or $2 million a year, and they're fed. They're going, how do I take $2 million in revenue and turn it into $4 million, $5 million in revenue? So the foundation's credit. They got to have good credit, okay? And if that credit is there, they can leverage so many things with their business, whether it's you know a business line or a business loan, because there's, there's non-traditional business lines and business loans, meaning you don't need to be in business for two years and have money on your tax returns to actually get a business line. You can get some non-traditional ones. But the other thing that people leave out when you're growing your net worth and you're injecting other people's money into your business, I would call it asset-based factoring. That's payables or receivables. So I had a client, I just spoke in um, down in uh, Chattanooga at an event called NugaCon. Awesome. Bunch of entrepreneurs down there looking to grow their business. And somebody in the audience was doing 500000 and they contacted me. They had a little bit of a cash flow problem. And they said, look, I got $2 million in jobs lined up in 2019, but I got a cash flow problem. I need $50,000. And if I could get $50,000, I could get all the supplies. I can pay the subcontractors their money up front, and I can book the $2 million in jobs. So the difference between them doing $500,000 and potentially $2 million in 2019 was a $50,000 gap right? Cash flow gap that we were able to fill based on jobs, a piece of paper that they had lined up. There's value in that paper in order for them to get that revenue to 
potentially $2 million in 2019. So in effect, they were factoring that contract, uh, be able to use it as a way to get the leverage to be able to fulfill the contract. 100%. Yep. Pretty yep. cool, right? Indeed. Indeed. Uh, now, has this worked for you yourself? Um, your own net worth has gone up a lot uh, using o o OPM? No, I don't practice what I preach. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Listen, I take every bit of profit that I have and as much OPM as I can get my hands on, whether it's asset based, business lines, venture capitalists, and I inject that money right back into my business. Everything that I'm doing right now is I'm pushing it back into my brand and my business credit blueprint and my revenue keeps increasing and increasing and increasing, which increases my net worth. I don't diversify. I don't have money in stocks for sure. Um, I have a little bit of real estate, but I have everything that I'm doing, my profit and OPM back into my business. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm, uh, I'm betting on right now. What are some of the non-traditional lenders you were talking about that are willing to invest or lend their money to uh, small businesses? Yeah, that's a good one. So, you know, the Wells Fargo's and the PNC's, they're, they're going to be very vanilla. Um, they're going to want two years and things like that. They're going to want to make sure that you're not high risk and, and they can be very choosy about who they're going to lend money to. And a lot of, a lot of businesses give up right there, but we can get people money for, you know, startups. We can get them money. If you've been in business for 12 or 14 months and your sales are really good, we can look at your bank statements so we can look at bank statements as opposed to two years tax returns. Okay. So those are the type of non-traditional. Now, once again, the foundation's credit. So if you're trying to get non-traditional business lines and business loans, you got to have a 700 score. A 700 personal score starts to open the door to non-traditional business lines, business loans. So I mean, who are these non-traditional lenders? Are these hedge funds or individuals? Who, who are these people? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a bunch of them, but hedge funds are, are a, a good example of how we get that. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, and then we also raise money too. So we can raise money. It's private money that we raise and then hedge fund money. We can lend up to 10 million. I've seen 15 million go before. So it could be a smaller couple hundred thousand dollar line of credit, non-traditional, and you can get as much as 10 or 15 million. I've heard that the credit bureaus are now opening up to allowing other ways of doing credit, not just uh, credit lines, but things like paying utility bills on time and paying your rent on time. Is that going to make it easier for people to get their credit up? Yes and no. I don't love that. Like as far as like adding rent to your credit report, it's kind of a double-edged sword. If you don't have the greatest landlord and you're trusting your landlord to, you know, there's a lot of um, sites that you can go on there and pay to have your landlord report whether you made the payments on time. I, for all the credit reports, I probably, me at this point in time, I've looked at like 60,000 credit reports. I've seen rent on like five credit reports. It's, it's not really on there. Every once in a while, you'll see utility bills, you know, so that stuff's not nice, but the credit card is the easiest way. Like people are complicating it with adding their rent and adding, you know, utility bills. Can you do that? Yes. Do you have to pay a third party to get involved and you have to tr really trust your landlord because your landlord might say, well, your, your rent's due on the first, but you paid me on the fifth. So I'm going to report back to rental karma that uh, you were, you were late. Now on your mortgage, you have a 30 day window. So if your mortgage is due on the first and you pay it on the 29th, that technically you're on time. 
So you're kind of you're gambling there where I've seen some people get burned. But in the simplest form, the, e- the easiest thing that people can do is add credit cards. The, there's an app, the Credit Karma app. Credit Karma will give you odds. It'll say, based on where you're at right now, this card's going to have excellent odds of getting approved, or this card's going to have poor odds. That's the best way because 30% of your score is based on credit cards. So if you're looking to build credit, credit cards, it, they're, they're giving them out right now. They're very, very easy to get. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest for this first half hour has been Carl Scaramuza. He's the president of Credit Blueprint. You can find out more at his website, creditblueprint.net. Thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Carl. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back after this break with John Lanza with The Art of the Allowance. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategy screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. 
The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is John Lanza. He is the author of a new book called The Art of Allowance, a short practical guide to raising money-smart, money-empowered kids. He also calls himself the chief mammal at Snuggle Zoo Entertainment. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So what does the chief mammal of Snuggle Zoo Entertainment do? <laughs> well, uh, we got into this uh, kids and money teaching and learning. My wife and I, uh, we now have two girls who are 15 and 13, but when the 15-year-old was six months old, we came up with this idea called the money mammals because we knew we wanted to teach her about financial literacy. We just we knew we wanted to raise our kids to be money smart. We didn't want to leave it to chance. And my background was in kind of entertainment and education. And it just made sense to me that we should make this fun for kids. And so we came up with this concept of the money mammals. The money mammals sing about sharing and saving and spending smart, good, solid, fun money messages for kids. And I came up with the chief mammal concept because I remember Maxine Clark, who was, uh, who still is, I think, the CEO of Build-A-Bear. And I was, I, I, I didn't like it when I first saw it, but she called herself the chief executive bear. Then I, when I had my own company, I realized it was, I never forgot that name. And I realized, you know what, that's kind of a cool thing. And I decided to call myself the chief mammal. So it always gets, it always gets at least a chuckle or a interested glance when I tell people I'm that. Very good. So uh, in, a lot of parents don't really know how to handle allowances. Why do many allowances fizzle uh, and, and not really are handled in the right way? I think it's primarily because they are lacking intention. I know that happened with me. Uh, my dad, who ironically was a banker, so you'd think the money smarts would be part of, uh, kind of part and parcel of growing up. Um, and it just wasn't, and my, my parents are, were terrific, but one of the things that they did was they did start an allowance, but it was kind of rudderless. It was kind of done because that's what you're supposed to do to teach kids money. And I realized that the reason that it didn't stick and that allowances tend not to stick is because people don't have a purpose to them. And so what we wanted, what the idea behind our program is to provide a purpose and the purpose 
of an allowance is to teach kids to get money smart, to get comfortable with using money, to learn to use money as a tool, and to ultimately, eventually, hopefully, become kind of money-empowered. One of the concepts you use is what you call nudging your child. What, what do you mean by nudging, and how do you do that? Well, what you want to do with nudging, nudging is a concept that came up that's from a book by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And the, the probably the most common nudge that people might know about is the idea that you opt people into, for example, uh, the reason that, that a lot of folks are now opted into 401ks is because that simple opting in of people leads to a much larger adoption of something that societally is probably very good for most people, and that is saving for their retirement. Similar type thing it happens in allowance. And the idea here with the nudges is to nudge them into doing things like paying themselves first or putting money in the save jar. And I'll elaborate on that in a second. Or, for example, putting some money or opting them into sharing or giving or you know, providing money to charitable giving. And maybe I should give you just a little bit of context and how sure. to set up a basic allowance so those nudges make sense. Is that a good idea? Yep, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a basic allowance might be $5 per week uh, per age of the child. So simply put, $5 for a five-year-old. And the way the nudge might work, or the way the allowance would work, is they would get $5, and then they would have three jars. So there'd be a share jar, which is for charitable giving. There would be a save jar, which is for saving for longer-term items. And for a five-year-old, a longer-term item might be four to eight weeks of saving. And then there's the spend jar. We call it the spend smart jar just so that, we're, so that they're thinking about their spending whenever they are going to be spending. So those are your three jars. And at allowance time, the nudges would be one of those dollars automatically has to go into the save jar. And that is opting them into the idea of paying themselves first always. Share jar gets another dollar. That's automatic. They have to do that because we want to teach them about charitable giving. And then there's three dollars that are discretionary dollars. They can go into and very often do into the spend jar, but kids could also put it into the save and they could also put it into the share. Now, the reason I called the book The Art of Allowance is that different families are going to do that differently. So a family that really values charitable giving might say, well, we're putting $1.50 of that, of that $5 into share, and one that values maybe more savings might put $2 into the save jar. You can do, do it however you want, but that's the general idea behind giving kids an allowance and then getting them to break those allowances up into making choices every time that they get them. So one of the big problems is that everybody wants instant gratification and they're being advertised to all the time and kids are being trained from very early on to become consumers and buy things and so on. How do you make them not slaves to uh, consumer wants as opposed to needs? Well, I think that's, you know, we focus on three kind of core concepts and those are saving for goals, distinguishing between needs and wants and making smart money choices. I think the beauty, actually one of the big pluses with setting up an allowance and doing it young is that you are automatically opening up a conversation with your kids about money and you're empowering them to have their own money and then to make their own money choices. So once you've set up an allowance and you've established that when they want something, they have to pay for it, then it makes it much easier to deal with those kind of the, 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 the I mean, there's endless consumerism. That's that. There's endless um, inputs from media, endless inputs coming in from, you know, advertising, wherever it might be. 
And the best way to protect yourself against this that I've found is this allowance, because once the kids have their own money, then they have to make their own decisions. So once you've established that you're not going to kind of give in to whatever their, their wants are, then they realize that if it's something long-term, they have to save for it. And by long-term, it might be, let's just say, for example, uh, my daughter saved for a scooter is one of her first goals. That took her about eight weeks. If we hadn't had an allowance set up, then we might have just gone out and purchased her the scooter, and then she doesn't learn the lesson that it takes some time. She has to delay her gratification to save for that. Two, she doesn't necessarily take as good a care of that scooter. In this case, she's now 15. She still has that scooter. And I think those are like – that's that's one of the beauties of setting this up is that you're having those, you have, you have an opportunity to have these conversations and your kids are learning about delayed gratification because you now have a, you have now have a vehicle for whenever they have something that they want, that's going to take some time, you have a save jar. And then if they go and there's stuff that they want kind of immediately, if they have enough money in their spend smart jar, then that's what they're going to use. They're not going to be asking you for that money. How do you set the amount of the allowance? Uh, you, you said to start at age five. You're saying every year that they go by, you add an additional $5? Is that, uh, and this is on a weekly basis or monthly basis? How do you set the amount of the allowance? So we do it on a weekly basis in this kind of starter allowance for, say, a five, six, and seven. So a five, five-year-old gets $5 a week, six-year-old gets $6 a week, seven-year-old gets $7 a week. And then once they get up to be uh, in the in the uh, ten or older, then they're once they're tweens or teens, then what we do is we we create we have something called the breakthrough allowance. And the reason we call this a breakthrough is that they are now going to get a lot more responsibility. Consequently, they're also going to get more money. And the way that would work is that they're now responsible for clothes. So my kids now pay for their own clothes. They pay for their own communication. So the extra money that they that we have to fork out for their uh, phone bills, they pay for that. Uh, they also pay for their gifts, and then they pay for any extra food that they might have if they're going out with friends. And so their allowance goes up commensurately, but now they have a lot more responsibility. And one of the things that parents find out when they do this is that they're, and they end up spending a lot less money than they might think. Now, when you look at the face of it, and on, the, on the face of it, if you don't understand the uh, distribution or the, the responsibility they have, they're going to get more money. So, for example, our 13-year-old gets $100. She gets $100 a month. That's roughly 25, you know, that's $25 a week. It sounds like a lot until you consider that all the different responsibilities that she has. And it isn't uh, a ton of money. Now, we're fortunate to be able to give her that money and for her to be able to, to learn these lessons. But if you're doing it the other way, which is that when your kids ask for something, you're kind of pulling money out of your pocket, you typically are going to be spending much more money than you're going to be giving them an allowance in this breakthrough allowance. And they're not learning the responsibility of having to manage and budget that money over the course of a month. So this is kind of giving them a little bit of a, a little real world lesson, not totally real world, but once they actually start having, you know, getting a job and they get that money and it feels like a lot more money than they might be used to. Now they've started now, at least they have a context for making decisions and hopefully making smarter money choices when they start to get more money as they start to earn it. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this half hour is John Lanza. His book is called The Art of Allowance. There is a website, which is theartofallowance.com. 
And his other website is themoneymammals.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is John Lanza. He is the author of a book called The Art of Allowance. Uh, You can find out more at theartofallowance.com and also themoneymammals.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Glad to be here, Jordan. So how should you tie an allowance to doing something for it, whether it be chores or grades? I mean, a lot of parents tie getting the allowance to some specific outcome. How should you do that the right way? Well, I I think the best way to do it is to actually not tie it to your basic chores. And the reason is that the allowance itself is really a vehicle to teach kids to get smart with money, to use money as a tool, to learn to become kind of money-empowered, money-smart. And chores teach a different lesson. They teach, that, they teach kids that you need to do some work in order to earn some money. Now, let's just talk about basic chores. That's something that a kid has to do because they're <laughs> you're putting a roof over their head. So those are things like making their bed, cleaning their room, doing the dishes. You shouldn't be paying for those chores. And if, they want, if you want to teach them that lesson that work earns them money, you can give them 
some people call above and beyond chores. So that's you know something you might pay someone else to do, whether it's yard work, whether it's cleaning your car. Those are ways that they can learn that lesson. But what's important about an allowance, and I think sometimes where people get caught up in this, is that they think it's just a handout. And it is a handout if you're not explicit with your kids and telling them that this is something that I am giving to you to teach you to get money smart, to learn the basic money skills, to learn to save for goals, to learn to distinguish between needs and wants, and to learn to make smart money choices. That's the purpose of an allowance. So it's good to decouple those things, chores and allowance. So everything we've been talking so far is about banking, basically putting it in a bank account. But investing is different where the value of it goes up and down. At what age do you start getting them interested in investing and how do you do that? Well, I'm not an expert in investment, but I can tell you what I've done and I can tell you what I've talked to other parents about. And as as soon as they start to save some money, and particularly if you have a kid who is saving and not necessarily consuming and starting to accumulate some money, that's a good time to start looking into investment. And, you know, there are services, uh, we get nothing out of this, but an example is like Stockpile, where kids can invest in fractional shares. It's easy to do. It's easy to set up um, a kind of custodial account with them. And then what's nice about that setup is they can look at brands that they like, that they want to invest in, and then find out that that brand is tied into, for example, a larger holding company, and they can invest in a fractional share of that holding company. So that's, that's a kind of good place to start if you want to start stock investing. Um, or you can set up you know, something, a simple you know, ETF fund for them and a custodial account. Um, and then all, the other uh, thing to consider is once that, that, I've, that we haven't set up yet, but that I know other parents do, is as soon as they start working, setting up a Roth IRA for them. And I love the idea that when they do start doing that, that you match them you know, either dollar for dollar or 50 cents on the dollar because that's just getting them on the road to investing. It seems like a great way to kind of incentivize them with this idea of matching the money that they're putting into their Roth IRA from their work proceeds. So you think it's better to do mutual funds and ETFs than individual stocks and companies they may be familiar with, Disney and McDonald's and Nike and things like that? I'm not going to say one's better than the other. We're, I don't invest in stocks anymore personally, so that's why we have looked at them. That's why we started them on the, the, at the index funds. But we have invested in a few. We've let them invest in some stocks of companies that they like. For example, uh, one of my daughters was playing a lot of soccer, so she decided to invest in Adidas. And uh, that's, 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 that, that's the kind of thing that's very easy for kids to kind of find something that they might be interested in. It's a good way for them to then learn whether the stock, in this case, the stock has gone up, but if the stock goes up or down, they learn a little bit about the volatility of the market. And like you had said, it's, it's very important to, to try to get across to them that, uh, you know, that this, this, there is some risk, sometimes some significant risk, risk with this money. How much should you tell your kids about your own financial situation, uh, how much money you make as parents, what you spend, taxes? I mean, how much should you tell them about your own financial situation? You know, that is a very good question, and I don't necessarily advise parents either way. So we tell our, par- we tell our kids generally how much we make. Um, we don't, and I, and I, I think... 
You know, the thing about it is, uh, you know, Ron Lieber in his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, uh, kind of advocates for the idea that, you know, the kids can figure this out, so you might as well just be totally upfront with them. But I've talked to other money experts who don't feel that is the case at all. And so I think it's very much just a personal decision. Um, we haven't had a problem. I mean, my wife is a realtor and I'm self-employed, so we do talk to them about the amount of money that we make. But if you're not comfortable with that, then, you know, that's, it's really very much a kind of personal decision that you have to make as a, as a family. But I, I do think that Lieber's point that kids are generally going to find out if they want how much money that you're making is a pretty good one. And I, I think it's, it's, I think you're better erring on the side of, of giving them a little more information than you might necessarily be total might be comfortable with, but maybe not kind of going overboard. I'm not sure if that's particularly helpful advice, but that's the, <laughs> that's the advice that I'm going to, that I'm comfortable giving. And then on the share jar, how do you help them figure out what charity or where they should uh, give that money to that's in the share jar? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because you know, that is the jar that gets paid short shrift many times because, you know, obviously the spend jar, no problem getting a kid interested in that. Save jar is usually for something that they're really interested in, interested in saving for. I find that the share jar, you just have to kind of keep reminding them. So when you're doing your allowance distribution every week or as they get older every month, that's the opportunity to say, oh, look, you've saved, you know, $22 in your, in your share jar and then look for an opportunity. So a lot of times at their schools, the schools will be collecting money for whatever might be happening in the world where there, there could be a, a charitable, charitable opportunity. And so you can kind of point them in that direction and just be always looking for that, whether it's at your, at your religious, local religious institution, whether it's, you know, UNICEF during the, during, uh, the Halloween um, holiday. There's lots of opportunities. You just have to kind of point that out as they start to save some more money for in that share jar to say, oh, here's an opportunity to use it. There are also kids who are, you know, really – um, into their share jar, in which case, you know, the, these are kids that are very charitable, and often these are kids are coming from families who are particularly charitable, and you know, you won't have to worry about that. They'll they'll always be thinking about that money in that share jar. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. We've had a lot of very good advice on how to deal with allowances. My guest this half hour has been John Lanza. Uh, he is the author of the book The Art of Allowance: A Short Practical Guide to Raising Money Smart, Money Empowered Kids. You can find out about it at the website, theartofallowance.com. He also runs uh, The Money Mammals, and the website for that is themoneymammals.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, John. Jordan, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.